he makes this awesome statement that in order for us to pull out of this nosedive that we have going on in this day and age, we need to address the heart. We need to address our instincts and we need to start balancing these entities. Welcome to the Emotional Compass. This is Bodhi. And Abby L. Hey, brother. How's it going? It's going pretty good, man. It's going pretty good. Another beautiful week in Florida. Um, last, last week was cool. This week is hot. And that's <laughs> the beauty of it. Just when you thought you're over the hump of the humid, hot weather, it comes back. <laughs> Yeah, soon I'll be escaping this damn heat. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to that. But last week you gave us a teaser of what we're going to talk about today, which was the Enneagram. And of course, we're going to expand upon what the Enneagram is, how it came about. But more importantly, the creator of the Enneagram, which from what you've told me is a fascinating person called Claudio Naranjo. Uh, he's a Chilean-born psychiatrist who was a pioneer in integrating psychotherapy and spiritual traditions. And he was one of the successors named by Fritz Perls, who was the founder of Gestalt Therapy. And finally, he created the Enneagram of Personality. Who's Claudio? Why is he so fascinating? Why have you been so fascinated by him? So it's a mystery, like the Enneagram itself is a mystery. And in his book, The Evolution We we Expected or The Evolution That We Needed, I forget the name of it. The Revolution We Expected. The Revolution We Expected. He goes into detail on, you know, all these aspects of his upbringing, his relationship with um, Fritz Perl, Oscar Ichasso. And the evolution itself of the Enneagram. Wait, who's Oscar Ichasso? Because we've thrown so many names now. Fritz Perls was the guy from the Gestalt therapy. And if yes. you guys don't know what Gestalt therapy is, it's this form of therapy that was created that involves a lot of cathartic emotional purging. And it got really popularized in the 80s and the 90s. And it's still used, but I think there are other evolved forms of therapies that have come along, like cognitive behavioral therapy, EMDR, ART. The, I mean, the list goes on. Totally. Ichaso was um, the guy that started the school and the Arika school Basically, it's a place of this birth of, of minds where Ichaso starts taking the Enneagram, but he took it from what was called back then the Enneagong, which was based on all these different traditions on from like a lot of different schools of thought, like the esoteric schools of thought of most uh, Islam or Christianity. So it's more like the shamanistic aspect of all these different traditions put together. But before I even start that, I just want to tell you about how I got into 
this Naranjo wormhole. So my wife got, she's part of a, a mentorship program. And during her mentorship, she was exposed to the Enneagram. And for the most part, I didn't really pay attention to the Enneagram. I think at one point I'm, I have done the test and I came with a lot of different answers. Like mine was very towards the middle. It wasn't really defined, but the one that really defined me the most was the number one, but it was by small margins. So I didn't really pay much attention to it until she started researching and studying the book. So the book that she studied is called The Wisdom of the Enneagram, a complete guide to psychological and spiritual growth of the nine personality types. So she's going through this book and like every night she's telling me about a different personality. Like the one is perfectionism. uh, The four is melancholy. Like persons will be their own like martyr. They, They seek attention from a negative aspect. Um, The number eight is the confronter. It's aggressive. And within each personality, there was a a high achiever or a person that had evolved beyond that number. There was like the middle and, and a low. So it was like a high, middle, low. So I found it really fascinating how these nine different types of personalities really had their own characteristics. And once that hit and I started seeing a lot of the things within me that resonated with a lot of different ones, it started making me think about my progression in life. When I was younger, I was a little bit different and there was a lot of things that I didn't like about myself and I started to overcome and how those traits also, I could see them within my family or like the way that my grandmother was. So based on all those things, I was like, so how, how did this start? Who's the be- Who started this? And she really couldn't give me a straight answer. So I started researching online. And after digging all this up, then I, I stumble across Claudio Naranjo and Oscar Ichasso and their story uh, through a YouTube video. Um, but there's a bunch of other people out there that are also responsible for marketing and expanding this Enneagram in different methods. So that was the beginning of it. And that led me to purchase um, the revolution we expected, which went into detail, pretty much a full length description of some of the videos that I had seen from Naranjo. So, yeah, before we even go there, I just kind of like for the uninitiated, the, the ones that don't know about what the Enneagram is, I mean, simply put, it's. It's basically nine personality types that are not independent of each other. They are actually connected to each other through certain traits. And it can actually, there's therapy based on Enneagram as well. And it can give you a lot of insight into your own strengths and your own weaknesses based on these tests that you take online. And there are there are lots of Enneagram tests online, but you can take a test online and figure out what's your personality type. And it's not like you will just be one personality type. You will have like the dominant personality and then they'll give you the percentages of what the other traits are. That's perfectly put. So 
one of the things that I found fascinating with Naranjo talking about the Enneagram was that the seven deadly sins are very similar to the Enneagram, but then the Enneagram was adapted to include two more. And he was making fun of it that uh, I forgot the name of the king or the priest that started the seven deadly sins. His favorite number was seven. So that's how they came up with the seven. So it's a beautiful thing where you got fear, shame, and anger or rage. And then within those, you got like different groups that categorize based on that. But in the book, what was really fascinating was that the, the rage or the anger is more associated with the neocortex or the thinking mind, the feeling or the triad or the shame is more associated than with the limbic or the heart. And then the, the thinking or the loyalist is more like instinct or the reptilian brain. And one of the things that he was talking about in this revolution was that in the last 6,000 years, the, the paternal, the, the male aspect has over-dominated the feminine and the instinct to suppress the child and also to, to suppress the woman, the, the righteous man of the, of the house, and he has to dictate things. And what he's saying is that that suppression on the woman suppresses the compassion that must be there in order for logic not to go over the overboard and for there to be balance. And then the reptilian or the instinct, once that is also suppressed, because obviously we're, we're sinful people, we can't trust our feelings or emotions or, or intuitions. We, we must look elsewhere for it, which is one of those, you know, indoctrinations that we, I used to have as a Christian was that, all my feelings were pretty much sinful. So I, I needed to trust in God, not in myself. Oh, I, I thought you were actually saying like, we can't. And I was like, wait, that's completely opposite to what we talk about in this podcast. But you're saying like, that's what is indoctrinated in us. Like yes. not to trust your feelings. Correct. Right. Okay. Or who you are. Like you have a lot of people that are struggling with their sexual identity because they can't trust what they're into or what they like. And they're guided by a family members that are putting pressure on them to be something that they're not. So you can see how those suppressions then could cause a lot of deficiencies or episodes in someone's life that are suppressing their instinct. So he makes this awesome statement that in order for us to pull out of this nosedive that we have going on in this day and age, we need to address the heart. We need to address our instincts and we need to start balancing these entities because by us being led through logic, we give priority to money and organizations that are not compassionate, that are not looking to help out those in need, that are not looking to express our intuitions and feelings. So when I was going through the book, it made me feel really good that you as my co-host and myself included, we've been on this journey to balance, to go back to heart, to come from our gut, to listen to our feelings, to come from this, this inner intuition. So I'm so grateful to have you, brother, that you've 
taking on this project with me because it goes right along with what Ned Anho has been teaching. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, because we are so conditioned to go against what is natural to us, to not listen to our intu- intuitions, not to listen to our biological uh, urges and needs and just to ignore everything and just follow blindly. I know you come from a heavy religious background and so do I as a kid. And growing up, I completely rebelled against it as a teenager and someone in college. And it's it's good to hear him say and validate the things that we came con- to the conclusion by just fumbling in the dark, really. Because we we realized that it didn't feel natural to us, like not listening to our intuition and not listening to our inner guidance and kind of just shutting off and just living this life where you're told to do something and you're just doing it. I know I was never that kind of person. And then when I became independent, I was like even more, you know, fighting against that notion. He's mentioning a lot. He mentions a lot in the book how Freud is talking about our instincts and our, and how the suppression of that creates episodes in our lives. And it was really interesting because if we were to trust our instincts and we were to act upon them, we would be more balanced human beings because we do have a moral compass. Just the same way we have an emotional compass, we have a moral compass that tells us what's right and wrong. And that's been a huge argument. Like animals know it and they're not even human. Who who do we think we are that we can't trust in, in our innate ability to discern between what's right and wrong? So that to me is always fascinating how we come to not trust our intuition. So at what point in his career or his life did he start working on the Enneagram? This is back in the late 60s where the Eureka School, I believe it was founded in Berkeley, California, had a group of people where they all got together. There was a Jesuit priest and some other um, therapists in there as well that they were teaching this Enneagram. And according to him, right, I I, I wasn't there. I'm, I'm just going based on what I read and there's a lot of information that obviously I'm not going to cover. So you be your, the own, your own judge. But in, in his teachings, he's, he had them sign or say that they wouldn't share this material because before the internet, before our time, things were way different. Material wasn't shared. Um, there wasn't the internet where you could type up and look up all the different people that have composed this information. It was very different back then. I feel like the pipeline was closed. You had to mentor under somebody before you could even start understanding some of these concepts. So I could imagine somebody told us about the Enneagram back in the in the 70s. It would have been almost impossible to learn about it unless we were like in the cutting edge of all of it. But the other point that I wanted to talk about was the right side and the left side of our brain are right and left hemispheres, which I think we've talked about it briefly. And the right side is the intuitive and the left side is the logical. And 
one of the greatest quotes I a really awesome quote I heard from this book was just like God created your left and right eye in order for you to have that perspective so you could be able to gauge depth. He also created the left and right side of the hemisphere so that you could create balance and perspective between the logical and the intuitive. And one of the things that we have been strangling is our creative. Like he's saying how our school systems are no longer putting money into the arts like music and art and theater. But without those things, we lose balance. And one of the things that he also mentions is like we're, we're all about information. We are all about filling our cup with information. But we do very little to develop our wisdom. And that's amazing to me because I never thought about it that way, how wisdom it needs to be taught in schools, how dealing with your emotions or how you're feeling should be taught in school. He's saying, he said, we have Wikipedia and Google and schools are worried about giving kids information. <laughs> it's like, but I mean, like you can't give someone wisdom, right? It comes from the application of knowledge. That's where you get wisdom from, from experience, from applying that knowledge that you have learned. I guess in the schooling system, they aren't given enough opportunity to apply the knowledge that they learn in schools. Because the only opportunity that they're given is like, here's a test. Let's test you on this knowledge. And that does not develop any kind of wisdom whatsoever. He has a little different definition of wisdom. The level of wisdom is not just application. His level of wisdom comes from the, the activation of the intuitive, the activation of your instincts. When you combine instinct, when you combine the intuitive chaos, and when you, you apply knowledge, then you have an inner wisdom. You have an inner compass that allows you to guide through life. So it's it's the same way as allowing God to, to answer through you, allowing the universe to, to come with the right solution. It's almost like wisdom in his definition to me felt like opening up your connection to source, which is the application of the right side of the brain, which is the arts, music, ecstatic dance, all these modalities that have been suppressed because we want to apply knowledge through, we want to apply wisdom through knowledge and experience. But he's saying that that is very limited as well. It's the application of the balancing of the intuitive, your heart and your logic put together. That's, that's the concoction that creates the wisdom. I mean, it still goes back to my point. Like nobody can give you that. You just have to have the opportunity to experience it or practice it over and over again. But what he mentions in his book is that we create these jails or these buildings where kids are stuck in a seat. The only thing they look forward to is interacting with other kids where they're stifled by the, the curriculum that doesn't allow them to have creativity that won't allow them to climb a tree. So I think with the wisdom comes like for him to have a balanced human being, to have a, a being that comes from nature, that's part of nature, that's 
connected to things. It's not using nature to its advantage. It's part of nature. And he makes a huge point, like the Native Americans were not looking at the land as being theirs. They were looking at the land as being what they're part of. So it's like, how, how can we own the land? The, the land is who we are. So it's more of those esoteric views on, on the holistic approach to being a human versus this, this narrow-minded point that my logic brain is going to give me all the answers that are required. So he talks a lot about like free association and allowing things to like bubble up from the cosmic river or cosmic waters. So his his definition of wisdom is like this connectiveness to source where we are conduits that we are channeling through. And that's how great pieces of art and great pieces of music were created. He starts mentioning like about Bach and his relationship with music and how that was like a connection to source. So in his in his book, he's he's basically asking us to be humans again, to not rape the land, to not suppress the child, to not suppress the woman, but to bring balance to this whole ecosystem of of humanity. And I found it very, very interesting. And I found it that the Enneagram itself is not a something for us to condemn ourselves or to feel bad about is something that brings light to our, our being so that through the awareness of what we are, there's this spontaneous and natural release of these things that we have been suppressing or holding behind. It's like the shadow. Once you turn on the light, there's no longer shadow because of that understanding. Well, the shadow is always there. never goes away. (laughs) <laughs> it just it just becomes shorter when you turn on the light and depending where the light source is but the book that you're talking about is the revolution we expected which is one of his uh final books it's basically a call to humanity to to awaken as a collective to its potential and work to transcend our patriarchal past and present And this, I'm just reading the description of the book where it says it's a map that argues not only for collective individual awakening, but a concerted effort to transform our intuitions so that our educational and cultural lessons are in service to a better world. That's fascinating. And and I apologize that I didn't get a chance to read this book because I had just been busy with work, but you've been sharing all these like little nuggets with me and I'm fascinated by this individual. I mean, rest his soul. He passed away last year or the last few years ago. Last year. Yeah. Over the summer. Right. And it seems like he contributed a lot to our society and our culture. And with that, I think we can wrap things up a little life and times of Claudio Naranjo. Rest in peace with the emotional compass until next time.